<clears throat> now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for justice professionals and anyone interested in learning more about forensic science, innovative technology, current research, and actionable strategies to improve the criminal justice system. In episode two, Just Science interviews Nicholas Hughes, assistant public defender with the Harris County Public Defender's Office in Houston, Texas, about the validation of tools utilized by digital forensic laboratories. The diversity and complexity of devices that can be used as digital evidence continues to be a dynamic problem. From malware scanners to cell phones to smart homes, digital evidence can be a pivotal piece of the puzzle when investigating crimes. Nicholas Hughes is uniquely poised to drive better practices within the digital forensic discipline. He blends his background in computer engineering and law to better understand problems of inaccuracy and misinterpretation. Listen along as he discusses digital security, the value of a skilled technician, and the validation of digital forensic tools in this episode of Just Science. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here is your host, Dr. Mike Planty. Hello, and welcome to Just Science. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Planty, with NIJ's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, a program of the National Institute of Justice. Here to help us with the discussion today is Nicholas Hughes, an assistant public defender with the Harris County Public Defender's Office. Welcome, Nicholas. Thank you. Our topic today is on digital evidence, uh, with the extensive and growing use of technology almost in every facet of our life, from mobile phones to GPS and cars to uh, internet searching, is now playing a really significant role in uh, how we understand criminal behavior. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? How'd you get into it? I kind of took a long route. I started out, I was a computer engineering undergraduate. I worked in IT for a couple of years. Um, I really didn't like getting yelled at by everyone. So then I decided to be a lawyer. Then I didn't realize that everybody yelled at you when you're a lawyer too. Kind of lately, I've started specializing more in scientific evidence. And I think it's kind of a place where my, I've always felt like I'm a jack of all trades and master of none, where I can take the pieces of my life and assemble them together. And Forensic science, and even some of the most simple cases, most routine cases, forensic science touches them. It's becoming increasingly more important. I don't know if there's anything that's more important now and in the future than having scientific evidence. Particular digital evidence is used for so many things in the criminal justice world. And I figured that was one place where I could put my previous skills and go back to school, learn more, and hopefully drive better practices. And in terms of your current position, can you say a little bit about what types of cases, what types of work that you're encountering? You know, I'm kind of fortunate that I get a little bit of everything. I'll tell you this. So, so the general rule of thumb is, is when you're talking about forensic sciences, the cases where you see a lot of forensic sciences are usually going to be the serious felonies. Uh, so basically the prosecution's office is going to pull all, all the stops in obviously murder cases. You see a lot of forensics and sex assault cases. I will say more than anything, like the people would probably be surprised when I would say the probably the biggest use that I see for digital forensics is going to be uh, sort of murder cases, robbery cases, um, and not what you think of like, you know, child pornography cases or uh, hacking cases. It's, it's usually cases where they're using a phone 
to give some sort of circumstantial evidence about what happened. It's not the crime happened on the phone. It's it's more background evidence. Sure. So you're trying to make those connections uh, where people were located, who they were calling, those types of things with mobile devices. What is your take on the state of digital evidence? So that's a really uh, good question. It's a really complicated question. Um, I think nowadays, I think anyone would tell you that everybody's getting more devices, more types of devices, more operating systems. Now you've got computers in your car. If you've got a Nest at home, there's information on that that could be important. Uh, Obviously your cell phone. So I would say that nowadays it would be realistic to say a lot of digital forensic laboratories are overwhelmed simply because there's so much information uh, and I would say because of that, the tools that are used um, in the digital forensic world are, are incredibly important. They are basically doing the brunt of the work. There is no way a person could go through, you know, 128 gigabytes of data manually. You need a tool to do it. So uh, the world we operate in requires these tools. Yeah, interesting. You mentioned that uh, the Bureau of Justice Statistics publicly funded crime lab report, while a little dated 2014, has shown an increase in digital evidence uh, requests and an increase in the backlog there. What are the challenges with uh, some of these cases? Can we talk a little bit about that? Sure. So I think that the cat and mouse game that's currently playing out and will probably always play out for the foreseeable future is encryption, right? So um, generally speaking, it's probably not in most phone companies' best interest to have devices that have vulnerabilities. If the government can get in the information, so can any bad guy. What I would say about that is, so, you know, you look at the big companies, you look at the Apples, the Googles, and a lot of the sort of ways that people extract digital evidence, particularly from phones, are uh, drive the sort of responses these companies have and the sort of security features that they add. You know, it, it's sort of like the analogy of a, of a front door, right? So if you have the best bank in the world, absolutely impenetrable defenses, but they leave that front door open, you know, anybody can come in and, and do whatever they want. And so the, these companies do not want to leave the front door open. But, you know, beyond that, there's the issue of the proliferation of apps. A lot of the times when we're talking about an application, it's not like they have some sort of external document that everyone knows how they store their data. And so basically the digital forensics world has to reverse engineer. It has to, to figure out how all that data is stored, how to extract it, how to make sense of it. And, you know, obviously that's not a simple process. I mean. Some of it can be simple if it's stored in plain text and is readily apparent and you can make associations, but it can be very complicated. Once again, a lot of time has to be spent looking at the code, trying to figure out where things are being stored and what's being stored and how to to make sense of it. And then then that's only compounded by the simple fact that uh, the proliferation of new technologies, the ever-changing landscape presents the digital evidence expert with real dynamic problems. Every day, the world's changing, right? And trying to keep up with those, whether it's an update to an operating system or a brand new technology, it it just presents a tremendous challenge. Sure. Yeah. And you, you could even look at the same technology, you know, they can restructure. So look at Microsoft Word, they can restructure the way they store their information. If you are anticipating the information is presented in one format and it switches to another, unless you have some sort of, you know, broader based mechanism to retrieve the information in there that might just go missing. It might just go dark um, unless you completely re- rework your solution. So this gets at the crux of our discussion today, really. It's about what types of tools are available how are those tools validated? Can you talk a, a little bit about that process there? Well, the, the truth of the matter is 
there's a big debate around what is meant by validation. And I think that if you, if you come from a laboratory context, like when we're talking about like a chemistry context or a, a, a forensic biology context, I think there's a pretty good idea of what validation means. I think, I think it generally means now you can debate about how much validation to do and how extensive it should be, but everyone has a pretty good idea of you. You're trying to get the data within the, the range of values that you expect to see. And you're going to look at within that range and make sure that your instrument is operating correctly in all those data points. Digital forensics really doesn't have the same sort of concept right now. And there are some practical reasons for that, but I think there are also some negative consequences for not having that. Right now, I would say manufacturers are the ones who are expected to be testing their tools. And that's probably more of a software engineering verification and validation process which is not necessarily what we're talking about in a forensic context or a scientific context. Um, and then beyond that, I think the best practice that most people would adhere to is like the sort of dual tool use, which once again, that's not necessarily what I would consider validation, but it's certainly a, a technique that can mitigate some of the errors you might see. Hopefully if your one tool has, um, for example, like say you process data correctly, but you're not outputting it correctly, for whatever reason, there's there's some issue in outputting it. Hopefully that second tool processes it correctly and outputs it correctly. And that way you would know, hey, I need to look a little bit further and deeper. What are the challenges when you talk about validity and reliability in digital forensics? Given the changing nature, you know, what types of standards are needed? I think most fields have the have some sort of concept of a reference material, traceable reference standard, where you can say, I know what this standard is. I know what it is, I know what I, what I should find when I run it through the instrument, and I can develop my validation test based on this standard. I don't think there really is as good of a concept in digital forensics, and, and I think there's a couple of reasons for that, right? One of them is it would be extremely expensive in terms of space because we would have to have all these different configurations, uh, we would have to have all these kind of different devices, there would be licensing issues, but so that would be one of the big challenges is in having, you know, the, I would say the academics usually refer to it as like corpora of images or, or samples that they could look at. I think the other problem is, is even more fundamental is just not having good documentation about how to associate particular observed uh, traces with certain events, right? So there's so, some, some things that are very well documented. But I don't think the documentation is centralized anywhere. You know, there's, there's a wide variety currently of skill levels within digital forensic examiners. Some might have a really good basic understanding of what observing certain traces might suggest or how to verify things. And others are really treating these sort of tools as more like a push-button solution. So when you don't have the sort of centralized knowledge that can kind of walk you through what you're observing, that's another big source of problems in the digital forensic world. Yeah, I, I think one of the ones you just touched on uh, previously about what uh, a known test case is. And while some tools can be validated with a small set, how do you scale up to the real world? That's a big issue there, right? It may be an, an un, unrealistically big issue in this. I mean, I, I think when you think about all the permutations you could encounter, uh, between software operating systems, uh, hardware. I mean, it, it gets to the point where it's prohibitive. I mean, obviously you can't do everything, but I, I would argue you need to do something more and you need to do something public. And what, what types of things are you thinking about there? 
You would have to have at least a, a standardized reference set of configurations where you could say, okay, um, here is a standardized reference set with a couple of different or, or, or several. Maybe, maybe you'd have, maybe you'd have as large as, as possible, but that you could take the tools and you could take these reference uh, set and you could within your own laboratory show that your tools are acting appropriately, right? Because you may have issues with your hardware. You may have issues with your software and they may not be the same issues that they're observing in the laboratory. There could be issues with how things were installed. There could be all sorts of problems. There could be corruption on your disk. I, I think there is a certain obligation, not only at the manufacturer level to show, hey, our software works and we know it works so we can test on X, Y, and Z, but even at that local laboratory world to say, I can come into court and I can confidently testify because I have tested this software on these images. And you know, if you had a big enough database, you could always hit different images and, and keep showing that each time you do validation, it's performing as expected. Along with this, you're, you're touching on some of those issues. So what are the primary types of errors that you see that are, are prone for uh, digital evidence, right? It's around incompleteness, inaccuracy, and also around misinterpretation. Once again, if we go back to the idea of digital forensics is mostly a, an art of reverse engineering, you know, you're always going to see issues with some small caveat or some small issue. Uh, j just say there's some weird fluke of a software or something that's not well documented or something that people uh, misinterpret. That, that's something that can easily be a problem. It can easily report incorrectly. Uh, beyond that, you've got the general concerns you would with any software, right? So um, this is in a very intensive process. It requires a lot of resources. They're making huge databases. Um, based on the artifacts they see on a computer. And we're talking about hundreds of thousands, millions, you know, we're talking about a lot of entries. So we're talking about processes that use basically every resource that processing computer has. And if that software isn't made correctly, it can blow up. And hopefully what you would have to have is no output. But what's scary is like sometimes you might have output, it just might not be everything. It might be incorrect, and if that examiner doesn't snap to, there was some issue during processing, or if there's not a law that says this sort of issue happened, um, you're going to be kind of stuck at the mercy of whatever that output is. And then beyond that, there's just the simply the, the sort of logistical issue of if you don't test something, if, if you don't have an examination performed on a piece of evidence, you can't make any associations or make any determination based on it. And that's something that's not unique to digital forensics. I mean, that's the entire forensic science world is struggling to deal with caseload. That's right. Um, you know, pivoting a little bit here, uh, you've done some work on tool validation for malware scanners. Can you talk about how you got into that and some of the uh, findings? Sure. So I, I think malware is interesting for a lot of reasons. Um, first of all, malware is really interesting because the people who make malware uh, do everything they can to make sure that people don't detect it so that it can inflict whatever damage the, the authors want. So we're talking about something that's usually intentionally made to be a hard target. Malware uh, researchers are, are usually pretty understanding of the methods that professionals use to analyze that malware. And so a lot of the techniques they use are targeted specifically at the analysis of the malware. And they can use all these sort of techniques like code obfuscation, which means they're going to take that um, what would normally look as a kind of a sensible template of in instructions that you could sort of follow and reconstruct, and they're going to make it look like pure gibberish. They can put nonsensical instructions, just like fill it up. They can use encryption. They can use all these tools to make it really hard to, to analyze. So that's one thing that's really interesting. And the other thing that's really interesting 
um, particularly from a digital forensic perspective, is that all digital forensic tools that exist are basically off-label use of commercial tools that are not really designed for some sort of forensic use. And what I mean by that, I just want to be a little specific. When we're talking about forensics, ultimately what we're talking about is evidence that is supposed to be presented to the court. And so there are different standards, there are different rules, there are different obligations that that field has. And you know, when you're looking at something, for example, for corporate security, yeah, obviously it's important, right? You could have millions of dollars riding on whether or not you have malware and whether you can detect it and capture it. But you have a lot more tools when you're in that corporate environment as well. So I can take that computer, I can look at it while it's running live, I can look at network traffic, <clears throat> I can look at a lot of computers within that, that office. There's just so many more options. But when we really think about using a malware scanner in the context of a digital forensic investigation, you are probably looking at a seized hard drive or a seized a mobile device and you're going through it one time and you're never booting it live. Um, in most investigations. So basically, you've got to rely on what would be called a static analysis using your malware scanner. You're going to hope that it detects all the malware. And the problem is, is when we get back to this idea of having needing public data, there's not a lot of public data about how these uh, malware scanners work. You know, I think people are learning more about them and they understand more. And there's, there's great sites like VirusTotal is a great, great site because it's a, what would you call like a multi-scanner approach? You can take a sample, you can send it to a uh, virus total, and it will look at lots of different scanners. And what really got me started to be really interested in this problem is not all scanners are the same. And, you know, you can take a sample and, you know, one of them might be almost every malware scanner out there will report it as some sort of malware, but you could take a different sample. Let's just say there are 50 malware scanners. There will only be five that are reported, uh, that reported as malware. So once again, these sort of techniques that the, the people who make malware use uh, to disguise it, they work even against some of these modern iterations of these tools. I mean, we're, we're talking about a, a really hard problem to solve. So the reliance on off-label malware scanners, that presents a challenge. Um, what, what other solutions are there for you? I don't know if there is a solution to that right now. So I think right now I, I'm fairly comfortable saying is this this is this is a, a brand new frontier. So what, what I can say is I've encountered in cases that I, I have been involved in where people believe that these scanners were infallible and, and they're not, right? So I think it's this point, it's pretty clear that they're not infallible. Um, but I think what we would need is a complete reworking of the idea of what we are doing in a forensic context. So when we're talking about most interest in the in the sort of virus protection realm, right? What we're talking about there, our biggest concern is making sure there's not an active infection on our device and making sure it can't come back. So we're not really concerned about are there traces that this, this malware left on our computer or our device that are completely unrelated to its functioning, right? But when we think about things from a digital forensic context, we've got to consider a lot of different things, right? So a lot of times there, we're interested in is this, what's the integrity of this device? Is there any suggestion that the integrity was switched during the time that's relevant? Are there suggestions that somebody else could have been driving some of the processes? For example, if we're talking about contraband, whether it's copyrighted material or um, child pornography, if we're talking about that sort of stuff on a, on a device, you have to still prove that that person knew about it and you know intentionally downloaded it uh, generally, or at least was aware of it and possessed it. So when you're talking about, especially historically, you had a lot of bad actors who would exploit computers 
and use that computer as a warehouse of things that were illicit. If we're just talking about copyrighted materials, you could put all of them on that computer, use that computer as a storeroom. And that way, if the person gets busted, you know, your organization goes on and continues and there's really no problem. There's no hit. It's somebody else who's going to deal with it. But from a legal aspect, the person whose computer is being used as a warehouse isn't culpable. They're not, they're not out there trying to do wrong. So those kind of issues, as a digital friends examiner, you have to analyze that device, rule out these other possibilities. And in order to do that, you have to have a window back in time. So if we're just interested in whether or not there's a current infection, you're really not getting the sort of information that you need to say, well, what I'm really interested in is, for example, on at this time, at this year, whether or not there was an infection. And I want to know whether it's the type of infection that could have affected the integrity of the device. I want to know whether it compromises the value of this device's evidence. I want to know whether it could mean that somebody else was, was behind these acts. That's what you would want to know. And, and so I think it would need a complete redesign. I mean, you would still have the same challenges of, of detecting the software that is made to evade detection and, you know, they're, they're really good at evading detection. Mm-hmm. But, you know, beyond that, things you might want to incorporate would be like the sort of files that the malware leaves behind. You know, when you talk about Windows, especially, you've got a registry, which is a special file that has a lot of entries in it that you could use to say, okay, here's the behavior of the malware in the past. And, and you want to look at deleted files, if they still exist. I mean, there's just a lot more you look at. And even you'd want to look at the, the logs of the virus scanners on that operating system or device, because that might have information that tells you what happened in the past. Because once again, a a digital forensics examiner is generally trying to reconstruct an event. The better the picture is, the better the analysis is going to be. And I would say the second problem with off-label use is when I was talking about the differences in the quality of examiners, this is where that becomes really, really apparent. So if you've got somebody with a very strong technical background They might be able to reason through some of these things. They might be able to kind of understand, okay, here's what I observed, and here's sort of the limitations of what I did, and here's what I can report, and here's where I can't. Whereas somebody who is not as in tune to sort of uh, the limitations of these sort of off-label techniques, they're going to think of it more as talismanic. Like, this is the answer. Like, I ran it through a virus scanner. I got no results. Therefore, there's not a virus. But once again, that's really not the absolute truth. You need to understand the limitations of that tool and those limitations are greater when you're using it for an off-label use. Exactly. So, and then when you do come across these limitations, is there a way to communicate that? Uh, whereas uh, if you went through the scientific process, you would have peer review, you would have other ways to establish uh, limitations and standards uh, around these. Is there a need for that? Certainly. And, and, I, and I'm not saying there aren't any groups out there trying to, to kind of fill those roles. You've got the, the scientific working group for digital evidence. You've got the organizing scientific area committee on digital evidence and digital media. You've got a lot of organizations that are professional organizations that are trying to keep up the standards. And you've got, of course, the, the NIST is, is trying to do a lot of work in uh, digital forensics. It's not that there's an absolute absence of these, these mm-hmm. sort of standards-making organizations. But the problem is, first of all, there's no mandatory authority. There's nobody saying, here are the standards and this is what you must abide by. There's not necessarily a centralized source of information that everyone has to go. I think that the the world in digital forensics is just so fragmented, especially in the United States. You look at UK, they're all required to do accreditation. So there's like, there's a little more 
attempt to kind of make things more uniform in terms of standards and, and how people process things. But here right now, it's just, it, it truly is kind of a wild west environment. In Houston, we've got a, a one laboratory that has accreditation for its digital forensic uh, lab, which is very rare in the United States. And then you've got law enforcement agencies that, you know, it's, it's somebody, some person gets a week of training and you are now an expert. So that variability, of course, plays an important role. When we talk about accreditation, we talk about, you know, the expectations around what an examiner's background should be about. What, what do you think the skills are needed for a digital uh, examiner in this area? You know, I, I think that the, the, the level of skills and the amount of skills, I think just like I would say in my profession, like they're expanding because there's just more things you have to be aware of in the, in the digital world. I think it's the same way. So it might have been enough to simply run a, a static analysis um, using one tool before, right? That might be all you would ever do. But nowadays, I think a good uh, digital forensics expert has to be able to manually verify data. They probably need to be able to understand some memory forensics, um, which is kind of a new emerging field. They need to understand about different operating systems. They just need such a, a broad, they need to understand a little bit about databases. They need to understand, it's just such a broad umbrella of information that are needed to critically evaluate tool output. <laughs> because once again, these, these tools are processing hundreds of thousands of, you know, millions of entries and, and assembling it together. What you need to be able to do is say, okay, this output doesn't make sense, or how can I make sure that I'm verifying that at least making sure that I'm mitigating any obvious errors, right? You're not, you're, you want to make sure that your testimony is based on actual data and you want to make sure you do what you can to make sure that things aren't being incorrectly reported and that you're not misinterpreting artifacts. So you would have to have a kind of a deeper knowledge um, to be able to, to, to trace a certain process through and, and to kind of correctly interpret that. Is there anything else you want to touch on in terms of the malware? One of the things that I've been researching and what I think is ultimately going to be the answer. So one thing that's really neat about digital tools and, and digital forensics is that when we're talking about a, a laboratory instrument, generally you have to load up all the sam samples in there. You have to prepare them Validation can be like a really time-consuming process. I think validation is always going to be time-consuming in digital forensic world, but the, the really neat thing that I've been interested in is how do you design automated systems? Because you could theoretically have a system in digital forensics that validates itself, that performs itself, especially if you have some sort of way to programmatically control your tool. Um, you just set up the samples to it and let it run. You would have to, of course, have the sort of uh, software and the sort of hardware that could run that validation tool, you could theoretically do this without the need for human input. So I think that's one area where digital forensics has a certain advantage. And I think that any sort of tool that we expect to uh, see wide distribution would have to be automatic. Because I, I think, once again, we look at the workflows that digital forensic examiners have, we see them increasing, and you, you need to have some sort of solution that allows people to accomplish more uh, within that limited period of time. And, and I think that's one of the great things about digital forensics is you can make these automated solutions that at least free that person up to, to do the sort of tasks that they're more traditionally assigned to do. And you mentioned in your work some proposed methods and models to strengthen measurement science around this. You want to touch on a few of these issues, the procedurally generated reference data? 
that's probably going to have to be the answer in the long term for digital forensics is it just takes up so much space to model a computer and, and space is money, uh, data is money. Uh, we can't necessarily expect everybody to have a huge database of computers and, and materials. So the question then becomes, okay, if I cannot store all these devices someplace where somebody can easily download them, what else can I do? And so one thing that is feasible and possible is to programmatically create the sort of samples that you would see on that device. There's been some researchers who have been looking into this, this concept and, and how to do it. And uh, I, I think it's really kind of promising because you could do two things. You could, A, you could produce data that's typical, but also as you understand what, what they would call in the field the sort of edge cases, the sort of things like what happens when there's a glitch in the database what does your program do? Does it blow up? Does it stop? Does it simply move ahead and, and report that uh, data is, is missing? That, that's one of those places where you could also have that procedural system, which would be, once again, it would be automated. Um, you wouldn't necessarily have to have human interaction in it. Maybe they would set the parameters, but you would let it do its own thing. And once again, you, could, you wouldn't need as much space. Uh, you wouldn't be as expensive. And it would be something you could update as you understand more about that software. You could probably maintain a lot of old versions of it. I think that solution is the most attractive. Now, the downside to it, the huge downside to, to it is that it takes time. You would have to have somebody sit there and program it, and it has to be maintained. So that's another good reason to have some sort of centralized authority uh, that's really given the, the task and the resources to do validation. Another uh, aspect you touched on is creating empirical models to guide digital forensic analysis. One of the uh, recommendations on a 2016 PCAST uh, report was about the testimony based on methods not supported by empirical studies. Can you say a little bit about that? I think one of the strengths of digital data is that it inherently lends itself to statistical analysis. And we take malware, for example. Malware can have really interesting behavior where file names change. Uh, they can be randomly generated. Sometimes it has certain behaviors, sometimes it doesn't have certain behaviors. Uh, so ideally what you would have is some sort of system that it wouldn't be created for validation purposes, but it'd be created to have some sort of statistical understanding of what you might expect out of this particular software or this particular malware or anything else. You would try to figure out, okay, if I am running this under normal use or abnormal use, what sort of artifacts would I expect? And you, you would hope to have a statistical model. Now, I think the, the practical concern here is, once again, when we're talking about there's so many different pieces of software, there's so many different types of files, uh, that could easily become uh, overwhelming. But, but I think that the, the answer to that is we need to at least focus on the common things we see and have a good understanding of those. And then we can start worrying about the sort of the rare cases um, the one-off sort of cases. And that's really where you would need to have somebody with a true expertise of the low level, you know, understanding how to trace these artifacts, understanding how to create experiments to generate artifacts and compare and say, okay, I can't give any sort of statistical precision, but since I've done this experimentation and I have observed this and I can rule out other things, I can say I'm fairly confident unless there's something that I'm unaware of that this is how this artifact was, was generated. I can trace this process from start to end. So yeah, given the complexity of digital evidence in the growing field, what are the future steps uh, do you see in terms of training, funding, research? I and mean, we touched on some of these. What are your opinions about those? 
Well, personally, I think the, the, the first steps that need to happen are certification and accreditation. So I, I think that one of the, the biggest thing that needs to happen is there needs to be uh, more standardization and more understanding of what somebody, what sort of background somebody should have before they're allowed to become a digital forensics examiner. And, and I don't think it's all necessarily, you don't necessarily have to have a computer science major or computer engineering background, but you have to have some sort of demonstrated understanding of the ability to kind of understand these artifacts to really to really say okay i can sort of trace through and i know how they're generated and i know how the information is stored and if i had to i could figure out how to manually extract them. that that would be the first level and, and then on top of that you want laboratories one of the one of the big issues and i it, i think it's interesting right now because i know nist is uh just issuing a call for a big black box study of uh, yeah. examiners and i think that's going to be really interesting but i think at a certain level uh, I have some questions about that because I think it, you could say, well, generally speaking, examiners, let's say they do well, right? And I, and I think they probably will. There are a lot of good examiners out there. I think they're going to probably perform fairly well. And, and if they do, it's saying, okay, well, we can say as a whole, we're, we're fairly confident in this field. But the problem is when you're looking at that sort of standard, when you say it's a black box, every single human being is an instrument. And, you know, you, I, I can tell you, it's like, well, I, I love that every GCMS in general works really well. But the question is, does this one, does the one that I'm performing the test, does it work well? And if you don't have like a good basis to make that decision. So, and I have a pretty good working relationship with the Houston Forensic Science Center. Um, I, I like the people there. I think they have a good idea what they've implemented there and what they've, you know, they've gotten some level of acclaim. And I think rightfully so is they've tried to implement sort of blind testing, even in the digital evidence section. So if you're going to treat the person as an instrument and you're going to have some level of black box, um, you're going to need to have some sort of quality program. One thing that I really believe in is having standard uh, operating procedures uh, because, you know, I, I understand there's a lot of variables and there's times where you're going to have to deviate from them in digital forensics. But it helps alleviate uh, mistakes and it helps alleviate unnecessary uh, variation between cases to have a standard SOP. And it makes things a lot easier to testify about. It makes things easier as a lawyer to investigate and say, okay, did you dot your I's and cross your T's? I think the more that, that laboratory documents its procedures and policies and has a, a good basis, you know, you have good, good validation projects to say, okay, we can justify these procedures because we've tested it and it worked. And I think that all leads to better testimony. And it, hopefully it also leads to a better understanding of what the sort of limitations are. So that, that would be my biggest, I think that's an attainable standard. And then beyond that, I would like to see stronger validation in, in digital forensics, not necessarily because once again, it's, it's a weird field and the air is different. Like you've got an instrument, it can be voltage, it can be a temperature, all sorts of different things. It's all these weird factors that are random and are uncontrollable that lead to different results. Um, but digital forensics, if you see different, different results, like something that's broken one way or the other, it might be something that you can simply solve with a reboot, but at the end of the day, something has gone haywire or somebody doesn't understand that system correctly. But that being said, I still think there's an obligation in every scientific field to say, I have a reason to believe my instrument is working correctly. And the reason I do that is because I, I proved it, I showed it. And, and digital forensics to kind of just shrug its shoulders and say, I'm not gonna do that. I just don't think that's reasonable. I don't, I don't think that's the right result. And I think more and more researchers are sort of uh, making that, that, that call. They're saying, we need to do something about this before the courts do. 
from your perspective as a lawyer, what do you think uh, are the path forward for uh, laboratories, digital laboratories, and digital evidence? So I think the conversation we're having today is is really relevant. I think one of the most important uh, realms where people can be the most fair and open in court is understanding the limitations of the tools. And I think laboratories should should take some time. It kind of behooves them to really understand what, what are the limitations of these tools. What are the the correct use cases? What should be reported? What shouldn't be reported? How should it be reported? Um, reporting is an issue where I, I do a lot of fighting in court simply because I don't think a lot of times people have done that sort of thinking about what does it mean when I use this terminology and what are the consequences, especially if I don't have the data to support it. Um, and beyond that, I think particularly as a defense lawyer, Laboratories aren't taught a lot about the sort of obligations the prosecutor has and the, the people who work through the prosecutor have for, for what's called Brady. And that's a category of evidence that's exculpatory, can be used for impeachment, it could be used to mitigate the severity. And I think that's one of those areas where uh, I think everybody needs better education because uh, I don't think anybody in the system really wants to convict innocent people or they don't really want to overpunish people. I think a lot of defense lawyers don't necessarily have the capability of going through digital frenzy evidence. And if they're not alerted that there's an issue, that could just be completely overlooked. And that's one of the places where I think people need better policies and better training. Anything else you want to touch on, Nick? Forensic science is really important for a lot of reasons. I think, generally speaking, a lot of people turn to lawyers like me and they expect progress to happen through us and through pointing out problems. But at the end of the day, the truth of the matter is, there's not many lawyers who have the sort of depth of knowledge to, to kind of understand issues in forensic science. And I think beyond that, there are not a lot of experts out there that can really help us in these kind of cases. And as you're aware, it's like just because you're um, an expert in a particular field doesn't mean you know everything about that field. You know, even experts have different strengths and weaknesses. Um, so at the end of the day, like, I really do believe it's the forensic science community that has the ultimate obligation to police itself. And I think that's where the reform happens. And I really enjoy being invited to the discussion because, you know, I do believe in forensic science. I do believe in science and I want it to be better. And I want it to be better not only for my sake, but for everybody's sake. I'd like to thank our guest today, uh, Nicholas Hughes, for sitting down with Just Science to discuss the need for digital forensic tool validation. Thanks again, Nick. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. Have a good one. If you enjoyed today's conversation, be sure to like and follow Just Science on your podcast platform of choice. For more information on today's topic resources in the forensic field, visit ForensicCOE.org. I'm Mike Planty, and this has been another episode of Just Science. In the next episode, Just Science interviews Michael Novak with the National Institute of Justice about digital evidence in the United States Courts of Appeal. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.